Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover in this audio, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 26 through 33. In this section of scripture, Paul is going to be regulating the use of prophecy and, to, and tongues also. The context is this, in the first 25 verses of 1 Corinthians 14, he was also regulating tongues and prophecy, pointing out the distinctions between the two, how tongues should not be done publicly because nobody can understand if you're going to do it you need to speak to yourself and to God do it privately prophecy on the other hand is done publicly and now he's going to further regulate prophecy so we start at verse 26 what is the outcome then brethren the outcome of what he's previously been saying before that tongues are indistinct like a bugle with no notes if you speak all in tongues in the public where nobody can understand what's the outcome of all this of of his regulation of this public speaking of tongues When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation, that all things be done for edification. And what he's saying here is leave time for everybody to have a chance to exercise his gift. Leave time for everybody. Don't monopolize the meeting. Now, notice all of this is in the context of the meeting, of the public assembly of the saints, which was done in the homes, but when everybody was invited... Because he says, when you assemble, in other words, when you assemble for a church service, this is not talking about in private, each one, that means everybody, there's a distribution of gifts. But compare that with today's church services. Usually there's not a distribution of gift in a modern evangelical church. There's one man teaching at the front. There's one or two songs sung in the church. And even in charismatic churches, you don't see a distribution of gifts. You see one man up there flapping his tongue and maybe a worship team or a worship leader. And everybody sits in the pews and watches the show. That's not the way the apostolic biblical New Testament church was done, folks. There was a distribution of gifts. Each one has a dot, 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 dot. And why does each one have a gift? Because Paul says in the end of verse 26, let all things be done for edification, for the purpose of edification. That's why we gather together in church, is to edify one another. And if a brother or a sister is not is not exercising his or her gift, well then guess what? I ain't edified. I mean, listen, I love to teach, but I'm not going to go to a church service where I teach all the time. People are going to be bored to death of me and other people are going to be sitting on their gifts, not exercising them and not growing. I don't want that. When Paul says, let all things be done for edification, does that sound like a description, a mere description, a non-normative description of the way things were done back then? Or was that something that he wants to be done in all the churches? Sounds like a command to me. And of course, most of the things he wants done, he wants done in all the churches. That's in the famous phrase he's going to use, right? At the end of verse 33, or at the beginning of verse 34... This is what Adam Clark says about this distribution of gifts. He says that no one gift should claim all the time and attention of the assembly. Because, I'm I'm, I'm adding this, not only are some gifts then unused and not available for edification, but also there might be contention between owners of different gifts. For example, the guy that sits in the church, he's gifted, he can't use his talents, his gifts, I should say. And so what does he do? He either starts a rumble in the church over he's more humble than that, he leaves and goes somewhere else, and then you've lost the use of a, a valued member of your church because you didn't give him a chance to function. What happens in a body if a, a, a member of the body doesn't function? You don't use your arm, it gets flaccid and useless. 
And that, my friends, is what today's evangelical churches are doing. They are taking their members and making them useless, weak, because they don't get to participate because they don't exercise their gifts. Because you got one guy up at the front doing everything. Of course, he gets worn out. Well, enough of that. I remember hearing about a book that was written by a non-charismatic guy called From... He was a pastor. And the name of his book was From Me to We. I thought that was a clever title, and he was getting at the same idea. We need to distribute the load in a church. 1 Corinthians 14.27 If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. Now, these following regulation that Paul regulations that Paul is going to issue concerning tongues, they are all about tongues spoken in the assembly, not private tongues, in the assembly. Well, how do I know that? Well, look at verse 26, which is the previous verse I just read. Paul says, when you assemble, each one has a psalm teaching revelation, has a tongue. So the tongues there is talking about in the assembly. The next verse, same thing. We go to the next verse in verse 28. But if there is no interpreter, he, the tongue speaker, must keep silent in the church. In the church. There's your context. Not talking about speaking privately. In fact, Paul in the end of that verse says, let him speak to himself and to God. That's not being quiet. That's not keeping silent. That's speaking, but that's in a different context. It's not speaking out loud in the church, but speaking to yourself silently in the church. Quiet, I shouldn't say silently, but speaking quietly in the church. Also, we see other verses that give the context of in the church. 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty three. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, if the whole church assembles together and speak in tongues. So he's talking about tongues. And verse 14, chapter 14, verse 19. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. In the church. He's not talking about the regulation of private tongues. What are these regulations? Summarized here by the NIV Study Bible, that two or three only can speak in tongues in a given meeting. They must speak in turn. Regulation number two and regulation number three, there must be interpretation. Simple enough. We go to verse 28. But if there's no interpreter, he, the speaker in tongues, must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Now, when Paul says, let him speak to himself and to God, that means that it is perfectly all right to pray under your breath. Pray quietly. As long as you don't disturb your neighbors, you can pray in tongues in church. That is a verse that's quite often overlooked by people who want to squash tongues. You can pray under your breath. In fact, I do it all the time. Because I go to a church now, people are totally ignorant of speaking in tongues, unfortunately. And so if I listen to somebody else pray and, and it's a serious prayer, I start praying under my breath in tongues. I I've got a scripture. I can do that. I'm not interfering with anybody. Nobody knows I speak in tongues. I mean, I don't know if they know in general that I do, but even if they know I do, they don't know I'm doing it right then because I'm doing it quietly where nobody can hear me but me. How do we know that when Paul says, let him speak to himself, that he's talking about speaking in tongues? Well, because he says, speak to God. When you speak to God, you are praying. As in 1 Corinthians 14, 2, for one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. He speaks to God. The one speaking in a tongue speaks to God. So it's clear from the context that when Paul is talking about let him speak to himself and to God, he's not talking about speaking in Greek or English. He's not talking about speaking in a native language. He's talking about speaking in tongues to God. Now, Paul requires an interpreter. Here's a practical problem. How does the speaker know there will be an interpreter when he speaks? Now, that is a practical problem. 
Well, here are some options. NIV Study Bible says the speaker should make certain that there would be someone who could interpret before he gives his tongue. I don't know how you do that. You go around asking everybody, hey, I'm going to give a tongue today. I want you to interpret. Well, how do you know that God's going to give you a tongue today? These are charismatic gifts. They come spontaneously. They don't come with lots of preparation. So I don't think that's going to fly. Here's another option. Option two, the speaker knows he can interpret before he speaks. Kind of like a prophet knows what he's going to say, but the speaker in tongues. And again, I don't know the difference between speaking in tongues with an interpretation or a prophecy. I don't know what the difference is. The third option, and this is the option that most people that I've seen use, is they, the speaker doesn't know, but he prays that there will be an interpreter that comes later after he gives the tongue. The tongue is given, everybody sits there and prays for interpretation, and everybody starts getting nervous because nobody's saying anything, who's going to interpret this tongue, and then finally somebody comes forth with something. We go to verse 29, 1 Corinthians 14. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. Now we move from tongues to prophecy, and just like there are supposed to be two or three tongues in interpretation, there are supposed to be two or three prophets. Now, two or three sounds sort of indefinite. It sounds like he means a few, like let a few prophets speak, let two or three, let a few. That's the, we, speak in it. we speak that way in English. However, Paul might have been speaking literally. I don't know. He doesn't say... Let two or three prophets speak at the most, which would make it sound pretty definite, two or three only. He does that in verse 27, our previous verse, when he talks about tongue speakers. He said, or two verses previous, in verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three. So it's pretty definite there. Prophets, he's not definite. You could say he just means a few, so four would be all right. However, you could also argue that he's speaking in parallel since he mentioned two or three tongues at most. And he's mentioning prophets. Why wouldn't he say the same thing? Why, would, why wouldn't he mean the same thing when he says let two or three prophets speak? Why shouldn't he mean let two or three prophets speak at the most? Let two or three prophets at the most speak. Well, that's a minor point. The point is not, we don't want prophets running roughshod over the congregation where nobody else can, can exercise their gift. Now, Paul says let the others pass judgment on a prophet who is prophesying. Well, who are the others? Well, here's some options others in the assembly. Well, the problem with that is people in the assembly don't have prophetic gifts, and they might have a more hard time judging the prophet than other prophets would. So the other option is when Paul says let the others pass, he means let the other prophets pass judgment. In other words, the ones who aren't speaking. I think that makes a lot of sense. But now the next question arises, if it's other prophets judging the speaking prophet, is it the other others of the two or three prophets who have spoken that day or is it the, of the others of the prophets who might be in the congregation let's say there's four prophets well that could be but i don't think that's what paul meant i think he meant of the three prophets that are speaking two or three that are speaking the ones that aren't speaking should judge now again i can't prove this either way this is just speculation but the point is the prophecy needs to be judged now let's say that a prophet speaks the other two or three, pro the other two prophets then judge the prophet to be okay, but does not the church assembled have the ultimate say? Let's say the the prophecy is we need to disband the church because the government is going to persecute us and come in here. We need to get, we need to move and and lay low for a month so they don't know who we are. The second and third prophets say yes, amen to that. That's what the Spirit's saying. But then the whole church says, no, I believe that is in error. Who wins? The judgment of the prophets or the judgment of the whole church? Well, according to a proper view of church government, ultimate authority for every individual church, doctrinally and morally, on issues of doctrine or issues of morality, the assembled church 
the whole church, the consensus of the church, that's who makes final decisions. So, you know, ultimately, the decision's in the hands of the church, whether the prophets have judged rightly. So they have plenty of safeguards. And, of course, that's not a perfect safeguard. Even a consensus of the church could be wrong in the flesh, not listening to God. But the odds are reduced. The odds for error are reduced considerably when you have checks and balances, prophecies, prophets judging other prophets and the whole assembly judging the prophets and judging the elders, too, for that matter. The elders don't tell the church what to do. The church tells what the elders what to do. And that might sound backwards, but that's the way they did it back then. We go to 1 Corinthians 14.30. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. Again, he's talking about prophecies here because when you have a prophet, you have a revelation. When you have a prophecy, you have a revelation. Now, notice that that word revelation is used without fear by Paul. Was he worried that one of these prophets in the Corinthian church was going to go out and write a book of Scripture and thus mess up the canon? No, he wasn't worried about that at all. He says revelations are fine in the assembly. But you contrast that with the attitude of the modern-day cessationists who scared to death that a prophecy is given that a revelation is coming. I listened to a bunch of Reformed podcasts. And I heard this constantly. If you say something like the Lord said to me, oh, that's not even charismatic. That's just evangelical, non-reformed. The Lord said to me, oh, that's extra biblical revelation. And I think to myself, and so you're worried, huh, that this sister that somewhere in some obscure little church somewhere said the Lord said to me and she's going to go out and write another book of the scripture. You're really worried about that. It's absurd. It's nonsense, folks. Paul says here that you can have a revelation. It has to be judged, and it's not, of course, it's not going to be elevated to a position of eminence in the canon. The early New Testament church made the distinction between revelations in a church like this and revelations which are part of the canon. If the early church can make the distinction, why can't we? Now, notice that Paul says the first prophet who's given a revelation must be silent. The question then arises, why would he not be silent? What's going on here? Well, you can see him arguing, well, now, you know, we can't stop the mouth of God. God's speaking now. You don't tell me I need to shut up. <laughs> no. Paul says you do need to shut up. You need to keep silent so other people have time to prophesy. This shows, as he says later on, that the sub-prophets, the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophet. You can stop. If the first one must keep silent, that means the first one has control over the prophecy. He is not taken over by the Holy Spirit and used like a zombie. So the prophet has to use his wisdom, even his natural wisdom, in deciding when to tell others about his revelation. So the revelation is a narrow, specific thing. It's not a revelation on when to give it, how to give it, how long to give it, who am I to give it to. You know, a lot of times you just have to use your common sense. Or you have to be directed by God on how to do it. But remember, we see in part, we prophesy in part, we don't know it all. So you know, it might be if you're getting up and you feel like you're going to can go on and on and on and on and prophesy. And I've heard prophecies like this. This reminds me of Judas, Persabas, and Silas, the leading men in Jerusalem who were tasked with sending the letter from the Jerusalem Council to all the churches. They took that letter up to Antioch, and then in Acts 15, verse 32, we read this, And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And people take that and they say, See there, the preacher preached a long sermon. You hear preachers a lot of time use that verse to justify sort of embarrassedly, sort of half-heartedly. See, I'm about to preach you a long sermon, but so did Judas and Silas. They did the same thing. Well, first of all, it wasn't a sermon. It was a prophecy. And also, the ESV translates it, trans strengthened the brothers with many words. It doesn't mean 
they strengthened the brothers with many words in one session, in one meeting. It could have been from week to week to week to week. They gave a lot of words of prophecy. So that verse is misused in more ways than one. And if they encouraged the brothers with so many words that they that they stomped on everybody else's opportunity to give a prophecy in the church or to exercise their gifts in a church, they would be violating Paul's words here in 1 Corinthians 14. We go now to verse 31, 1 Corinthians 14. For you can all prophesy one by one so that, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. Now, when Paul says you can all prophesy, he says, he says that in several other places. For example, in 1 Corinthians 14, 5, now I wish that you all... Excuse me. Now, I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you, plural, would prophesy. So he's talking about you all, plural, of all the Corinthians, all, all ought to prophesy. And in 1 Corinthians 14, 24, he says, But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all he is called to account by all. So Paul there is speaking about the possibility that all would prophesy. And he's saying that in a good sense. It would be a good thing if you all prophesy. Well, that sounds like a contradiction. Because if Paul says in verse verse 31 and, and those other two verses, verse 5 and verse 24, that you can all prophesy, how does that jibe with, I only want two or three of you to prophesy? In verse 29, he says, let two or three prophets speak. So in verse 29, he says, let two or three prophets speak. But in verse 31, he says, you can all prophesy. Well, how does two or three mesh with all? Two or three is not all. Well, this is the way I reconcile it. Paul is saying you can all prophesy over the course of several meetings. In other words, maybe not in one meeting because that would eat up all the time. But the next meeting, maybe somebody else can prophesy. Spread it around. John Gill has an idea. He says that all refers to all the prophets in the assembly. Well, you can all, all of you prophets can prophesy. Not all the members of the assembly, but all prophets in the assembly can prophesy. The problem with that is, what if there's four prophets in the assembly? Paul says only two or three can prophesy. Well, four is not two or three. Or what if there's ten prophets in the assembly? Ten is not two or three. So I don't think Gill's solution is a solution at all. I think what he means, you can all prophesy over the course of your church life week to week. We go to verse 20, 32. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. So, as the NIV Study Bible says, tongues as well as prophecy under the are under the control of the speaker. For example, to show that tongues are under the, under the control of the speaker, we can look at 1 Corinthians 14:15. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. Well, if you if you're choosing when to pray with the mind and when to pray with the spirit, well, then that obviously means you're controlling when you can pray in tongues. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. You're controlling when you sing in tongues or not. And likewise, prophecy is controlled by the prophet because in verse 30 he says, the first one who is seated, the first prophet who is seated, excuse me, the first prophet who is prophesying needs to stop prophesying when a, a revelation comes to another prophet who is seated and he wants to speak. So those prophets control their when they give their prophecies. And then when he says you can all prophesy one by one, that means, hey, you can control when you prophesy. These people were prophesying on top of one another. They were speaking in tongues on top of one another. They had chaos. Now, of course, that's not the problem we have today in our churches. Today we have the problem of dead silence in the church, except for one tongue up at the front flapping away. Sometimes I wish 
that churches today can have the problem that Paul had in Corinth. So we could, I wish there were some spiritual gifts to regulate. We don't have any spiritual gifts that we can regulate because they don't exist because we won't exercise them because we read John MacArthur too much. Now, in verse 32, when Paul says the spirit of prophets are subject to prophets, there's a couple of alternative interpretations here. We could say that the prophet's own spirit is subject to himself, or we could say the prophet's spirit is subject to the other prophets. Actually, I think it's both. All prophets should be humbly submissive to other prophets, and they should be in control of themselves and don't feel like they've got to bust out prophesying in the middle of something else and stomping on somebody else's gift. We go to verses we go to verse 33 and we'll finish up this section this audio for God is not a God of confusion but of peace as in all the churches of the saints this is the New American Standard Bible's translation God is not a God of confusion and obviously that's what the Corinthians were doing they were creating confusion by people speaking in tongues and prophesying all the time but God is a God of peace, as Paul said to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. God is peace. So when you want to, you want to be with God, that that's a nice idea, you know, because this world is full of strife. I mean, everybody's fighting everybody all the time. But God is a God of peace. When you go to church and there's confusion and strife, the church has now become an agent of the devil the world and the flesh instead of an agent of God who is a God of peace. And so, as the NASB says, God is a God of peace as in all the churches of the saints. Once again, Paul is not just flapping his gums for one church. He is giving instructions for all the churches, or he's, he's mentioning that in all the churches, not just Corinth. These, his, his strictures apply. Now, that phrase is in all the churches of the saints, and it, it can be put on the end of verse 33, or it can be put at the beginning of verse 34. Now, the New American Standard puts it at, at the end of verse 33, so the scripture reads, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Whereas the ESV puts it at the beginning of verse 34, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should be silent in the churches. And it's the translator's choice. It can go either way. The Greek is ambiguous. In my opinion, it doesn't matter whether he's talking about prophecy or whether he's talking about women speaking in the church. And I believe that he's talking about women in regards to the exercise of the gift of prophecy, as I will talk about in the next audio. But whatever he's talking about, he's referring to all the churches of the saints. I do not believe that anybody can make a case that Paul just had specific directions to give to one church that weren't meant to be for all the churches. This phrase, all the churches, is a nice verse for all those who think that every church should be free to do its own thing, which unfortunately there are about 99% of all evangelical churches think that way. Free to do its own thing regardless of, of apostolic patterns and examples. There's no direct command in here that I have to have the Lord's Supper as a full meal every week, so I'm going to have it as a sip and a chip every three months. Here's what the NIV Study Bible says about that phrase, all the churches. Quote, a unique expression in the New Testament that stresses the universality and commonality of the whole visible church on earth. All congregations are to obey the directives that follow. And I might add, that, or that precede, either one. Now, the fact that Paul is criticizing the abuse of prophecy as well as tongues is a note to be noted because so many people say, yeah, they were speaking in tongues all at once, and tongues is bad, and we got to regulate tongues. Well, hey, Paul wanted to regulate prophecy, too. This is a good verse for those who want to elevate the worth of prophecy over tongues in all situations. 
The relative value of a gift depends on where and when it is being used. For example, a gift of healing is worthless if a person is not sick. Well, in the assembly, we don't need 50,000 prophecies all at once. Paul is trying to regulate but not bar the use of prophecy, just as he wanted to do with tongues. I thank my God I speak in tongues more than you all. Why did he say that? Because he was scared that all of his, his restrictions on tongues might give people the wrong idea to think that he was against tongues. Likewise with prophecy here. He's regulating prophecy, but he's not trying to do away with it. Now, how can I show that? Very easily, I can go to verse 39, this chapter, chapter 14. Paul says this, So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently in order, verse 40. So what he's saying is, look, I'm just trying to get some decency in order. I'm not trying to get rid of prophecy. I want you all to prophesy. Desire earnestly to prophesy. And by the way, don't forbid speaking in tongues either. This is very clear. I wish that the same balance would be maintained by cessationists who are bound to deter. Determined to use 1 Corinthians 14 as a club to stomp out the existence of tongues. Ladies and gentlemen, I have now finished with that issue of speaking in tongues and prophecy, or actually not quite, because we're going to go to the next section in the next audio and talk about women being silent in the church. And it is my opinion that Paul is talking about, I don't want women judging prophecies, which he's just talked about here at the end of this audio, because it would be a violation of church order. This is, of course, a very contentious and difficult issue. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 